This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. I'll start out reading from JTA. The first article from JTA, Israelis are bending the rules to get COVID-19 vaccines and nurses are helping them do it, by Sam Sokol. Beit Shemesh, Israel. Joshua Brook was relaxing with his partner one evening when a text message popped up in one of his group chats. Extra COVID-19 vaccines were available right then at Jerusalem's largest soccer stadium. Brook, 29, was skeptical. He had received several similar messages earlier in the week that ended up being hoaxes. Still, he decided to take a chance. He and his partner hopped in their car, drove through Jerusalem's winding streets, and 25 minutes after he saw the text, made it to the stadium, which now houses a giant vaccination clinic. It became clear as they arrived a little before 7 p.m., that they were far from the only ones to get the message. The crowd ballooned from 200 to 500, and then 1,000 standing in a single file line snaking around the outer wall of the stadium. As the night wore on, nurses would emerge occasionally and ask everyone to go home, explaining that there weren't nearly enough extra doses to vaccinate the whole crowd. Then other nurses would come out saying that, yes, there were some extra doses after all. Slowly, the crowd began to dissipate. By 10 p.m., when Brooke and about 50 other stragglers were the only ones left, a nurse admitted them into the stadium where they were quickly processed and injected. He had been waiting more than three hours. Once inside, it took Brooke less than two minutes to get the shot. The next morning, he found that the appointment time for his second shot was already available on his health plan's application. There have been a lot of WhatsApps floating around claiming that at certain places they had extras and people arrive only to find that the information was false, he said. I happened to go the one time it was true. Israel has already given the first dose of the vaccine to over 2.4 million adults in a total population of 9 million, a far higher proportion than any other country. Approximately 800,000 Israelis have received both doses. Israel's vaccination success, accompanied by a spike in COVID cases, is partially due to the country's universal healthcare system, its tech-savvy and its small size. But it's also because Israelis, like Brooke, have been jumping at the opportunity to get their shots, whether technically they are allowed to or not. At the time of Brooke's vaccination, the national vaccine campaign was limited to those 60 and over, as well as frontline medical personnel. It has since been expanded to anyone over 40, and the government hopes to have all adults vaccinated by the end of March. But in Israel, rules are often seen as just another obstacle to overcome. And because of the country's distribution system, lots of ineligible people are being vaccinated. Israel's health clinics are using the vaccine developed by Pfizer, which must be stored in ultra-low temperatures and used within a short period after being unpackaged. 
The doses have a short shelf life and cannot be refrozen, so clinics make an effort to use all the doses they take out. The explanation I heard is that is what everyone is saying. They take out trays from the freezer and can't put them back, said Rafi, a man in his late 40s from this Jerusalem suburb who declined to give his last name. If people don't show up to appointments or they have less appointments than vials out, they give to anyone rather than throw them out. So Israel's healthcare system, which is run through four networks of clinics, has been distributing excess vaccines, with nurses frequently sending out unauthorized invitations on WhatsApp that are then shared widely on social media. Those who want to get vaccinated are invited to the clinic at 21 Herzl Street in Hadera, one such message announced to a Facebook group called Corona Vaccines Among Friends, which has 62,000 members. They said that there's no age limit. Thanks, we were able to get vaccine, uh, vaccinated, someone replied the next morning. Healthcare workers aren't actually allowed to send messages like that. But one nurse said officials tend to look the other way. There are tons of empty appointments, so nobody is taking anyone else's doses, said the nurse, who didn't give her name because she could get in trouble for sending the texts. Unfortunately, this has to be in an unofficial way. The government has cracked down on some hospitals that have broken the rules. Early this month, it stopped providing vaccines to Sarosky Medical Center in Tel Aviv, which had vaccinated thousands of teachers at a temporary clinic in the city's central Rabin Square. The government argued that the hospital had violated vaccination guidelines, which the hospital contested. Nine days later, the hospital announced it would reopen the clinic. There have also been reports that employees at Israeli hospitals are illicitly securing vaccines for family members. Staffers in the Prime Minister's office have received shots despite being ineligible, according to the Times of Israel. One person who broke the rules worried that jumping the line would carry a social stigma. Moshe, from the northern city of Haifa, got his vaccine after visiting a clinic just before closing time. He asked that his name or age not be published because he wanted to avoid being scolded for the early vaccination. But no one else who spoke to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency relayed that concern. In fact, Israelis who are vaccinated, contrary to regulations, frequently brag about it, posting pictures on social media and expressing relief. And Moshe was vaccinated despite any compunctions. At the clinic, he asked if vaccines were available. The nurse at the entrance wasn't sure, but a lady leaving the clinic who was clearly under 60 said yes, he recalled. So the nurse told me to go to room 18. The lady with the clipboard took down my name and identification number, and then seven minutes later they called me in and I got vaccinated. Israelis haven't only gone to their hometown clinics, Thousands of Jewish Israelis have been making their way to Arab-Israeli villages where there has been a lower turnout for the vaccination drive than in Jewish communities. I like the fact we're vaccinating together here, Jews and Arabs, and ending the pandemic together, one Jewish Israeli told the Times of Israel. This makes me happy. 
As vaccination numbers ramp up in Israel, COVID cases across the country are spiking. On Wednesday, the country recorded a 9% positive test rate. In light of those numbers, those who were able to be vaccinated early are glad they didn't have to wait, even if it meant bending the rules. Rafi, the man from Beit Shemesh, said that once he got inside the health clinic, getting his shot took just a little extra finagling. I asked one nurse if I could get it, and she was very nice and pleasant and said, sure, he said. When it was my turn, a different nurse was available. She asked me why I was there and who said I could get the shot. I said the other nurse said I could get it. She wrinkled her nose and said, okay. And next, a report from JTA staff. All the Jews Joe Biden has tapped for top roles in his administration. President-elect Joe Biden, uh, rather President Joe Biden, has filled the months before Inauguration Day lining up a slate of cabinet secretaries, assistants, and advisors, many of them Jewish. Here's a rundown of the Jewish names you should know with the beginning of the Biden administration. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State. Blinken, a longtime Biden advisor with an extensive diplomacy resume, is the stepson of a Holocaust survivor whose stories shaped his worldview and subsequently his policy decisions, including in the Middle East. He holds mainstream democratic views about Israel and said during his confirmation hearing that he wants the U.S. to re-enter the Iran deal and that he would consult with Israel on Iran policy. David Cohen, CIA Deputy Director. Cohen, who has long been involved in Jewish causes and issues, will occupy the job he held under President Barack Obama. He does not require confirmation, meaning that Biden's CIA has a top expert in Iran issues from day one. Merrick Garland, Attorney General. Garland was blocked from joining the Supreme Court in the last year of the Obama administration. Now he'll require Senate confirmation to become the country's top lawyer. In his speech after being nominated, he credited his grandparents who fled anti-Semitism in Europe before coming to the United States. Averill Haynes, Director of National Intelligence. Haynes was Deputy Director of the CIA under Obama and Biden, reportedly considered uh, her to run that agency. Her mother was the Jewish painter Adrian Rappin, originally Rappaport, and her non-Jewish father once wrote in an account about a trip with Haynes to Israel that the nominee identifies as Jewish. Ronald Klain, Chief, uh, uh, Chief of Staff. Klain, a longtime Biden, uh, who is the, president-elect's, uh, the president's first major appointment in November, was previously Chief of Staff to Biden in his vice presidential days and to Vice President Al Gore. He has maintained ties with his childhood synagogue in Indianapolis, where he famously learned multiple Torah portions for his bar mitzvah and has spoken about his commitment to raising Jewish children. Eric Lander, Office of Science and Technology Policy Director. Lander, a leading geneticist, will require Senate confirmation after Biden elevated his position to the cabinet level. After he was criticized for toasting James Watson, the scientist who was credited with discovering the shape of DNA and who also expressed racist and sexist views 
Lander said he too had been the subject of anti-Semitic comments by Watson. Rachel Levine, Deputy Health Secretary. Levine, raised in a conservative Jewish home in Massachusetts, is Pennsylvania's health secretary. She is the first known transgender person to be nominated for a position that requires Senate confirmation. Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security. Mayorkas, 60, the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, was born in Cuba to a Cuban Jewish father and Romanian Jewish mother who survived the Holocaust. He has worked closely with Jewish groups and often has spoken often about the specific threats facing American Jews. An array of Jewish groups sought a swift confirmation given the threat of extremist violence surrounding the presidential transition, but a Republican senator who supported overturning the election results blocked that possibility on Tuesday. Ann Neuberger, National Security Agency Cybersecurity Director. An Orthodox Jew originally from Brooklyn and educated through college in Orthodox schools, Neuberger has worked at the NSA for more than a decade. She helped establish the U.S. Cyber Command and worked as Chief Risk Officer, where she led the agency's election security efforts for the 2018 midterms. Wendy Sherman Deputy Secretary of State. Sherman was the lead negotiator for the 2015 Iran nuclear deal and took the lead in advocating for the agreement with the Jewish and pro-Israel communities, later describing tensions with Israel and some American Jewish groups over the deal as very, very painful. She has also played a role in hewing the Democratic Party platform to traditional pro-Israel lines. Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary. Yellen already made history as the first woman chair of the Federal Reserve, but now she has been appointed to be the first female Treasury Secretary. The respected centrist was one of three Jews featured in a 2016 Trump attack ad that reflected long-standing anti-Semitic tropes. Next from JTA, Chuck Schumer is now the highest-ranking elected Jewish official ever. He wants to make more history by Gabe Friedman. Chuck Schumer could not let the moment pass without mentioning its Jewish history. Georgia's new senators, John Ossoff and Rachel Warnock, were sworn in Wednesday, making Schumer the new Senate majority leader, the first ever Jew in that powerful role. Never afraid to reference his Yiddishkeit, Schumer recalled his roots in an address in the Senate chamber, and he got biblical too. With the swearing-in of these senators, the Senate will turn to Democratic control under the first New York-born majority leader in American history, he said. A kid from Brooklyn, the son of an exterminator and a housewife, a descendant of victims of the Holocaust. That I should be the leader of this new Senate majority is an awesome responsibility, awesome in the biblical sense as the angels that trembled in awe before God. Today I feel the full weight of that responsibility. In terms of strides for diversity, the headlining news of the day was Kamala Harris's milestone moment becoming the first woman and first woman of color to serve as vice president. But Inauguration Day was also more quietly full of Jewish history. Schumer became the highest-ranking elected Jewish politician in American history. 
Asaf was sworn in as Georgia's first Jewish senator on a historic Hebrew Bible and carrying records from his forebears' arrival at Ellis Island. Doug Emoff, Harris's Jewish husband, became the country's first second gentleman. In his short speech, Schumer borrowed a line that President Joe Biden had used a few hours earlier to hail Harris's glass-ceiling-shattering milestone and applied it to Jews. As President Biden said in his inaugural address, don't tell me things can't change, he said. The honeymoon, the honeymoon likely won't last long for Schumer, who helms the slimmest of majorities in the Senate, a 50-50 split of Democrats and Republicans that Harris can break with a tie-breaking vote amid unprecedented polarization. Democrats were outraged by the deadly Capitol insurrection two weeks ago staged by right-wing extremists, some of them anti-Semitic and white supremacists, and they called for the immediate removal of then-President Donald Trump for instigating the horror. For Republicans, while the event forced a widespread reckoning for their party, over 140 lawmakers combined in the House and Senate continued to back Trump's false claims that the election results were fraudulent. If he can effectively corral his Senate troops, Schumer will have a chance to leave an outsized mark on a range of issues that Biden has signaled he wants to tackle post-pandemic, from climate change to immigration to health care. Schumer, a longtime moderate, has shown signs that he has been emboldened by the Machiavellian moves of his predecessor Mitch McConnell, who often departed from traditional protocols to ram through Congress everything, from federal judicial appointees and multiple Supreme Court justices to high-stakes bills. In his speech to the virtual Democratic National Convention in August, Schumer said that the Senate would bring bold and dramatic change to our country if Democrats won control of the chamber. As for how he will make that happen, his former communications director, Stu Lesser, argued that unlike many senators, Schumer is savvy about forming small groups of like-minded Republican and Democratic lawmakers who can connect over non-controversial issues. So say there's a Republican senator from Pennsylvania, a Democratic senator from Wisconsin, and all of us have this same problem that we're working on in New York. Say this is not the only place in the country that has this kind of former defense plant that needs a new use, Loser said to the uh, JTA. Schumer's approach is we're going to build a coalition because we'll find out the other ones and we're going to get these guys to work on us on a bipartisan basis. He is acutely aware of what drives the senators. It's not like you approach it from the idea of I'm going to get people across party lines, which is toxic now, but it's I'm going to find three to five Republicans who actually have the same approach as the Democrats and get their support. Becoming majority leader is a possible climax to a career that many have called extremely ambitious, even by Washington standards. In a 1986 book, his sister Fran Schumer, a journalist, wrote, Ever since he was eight, my older brother wanted to recreate in the world his position in our family, president of the Schumers, favorite son of the United States. It was a lofty goal for the kid from Marine Park, a neighborhood deep in Brooklyn that in the 1950s and 60s was crowded with Jewish, Italian, Puerto Rican, and Caribbean immigrants. After graduating from James Madison High School, he attended Harvard as an undergraduate and law student in the late 1960s, where he felt out of place among its legions of WASPy and activist students. 
He dove right into politics without ever practicing law. He served in the New York State Assembly from 1974 to 1981, then in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing three different districts in Brooklyn and Queens through 1999, when he was selected, when he was elected to the Senate. Throughout his career, Schumer has been a staunch ally of Jewish communities in his home state and of Israel. In 2015, he was tortured over the debate on the Iran nuclear deal, which pitted what he and many other Israel defenders saw as the Jewish state's security interests against the Obama administration's good intentions. Schumer eventually would be one of a select few Democrats who opposed the deal. In a memorable moment on Jon Stewart's Daily Show, the host mocked an NBC, MSNBC reporter for trying to pin down Schumer on the Iran deal while they chatted in a diner. You brought an old New York Jewish man to a diner? Stewart said, you realize what this means? You're never going to end up talking about the Iran deal. You're going to end up talking about diners. That public image was a quintessential New York Jew, as a quintessential New York Jew, has been fodder for his enemies and played into political rhetoric that some see as coded anti-Semitism. But Schumer has never shied away from his roots as a Jew or New Yorker. Politico marveled this week at how Schumer, in the midst of his ascension and still dealing with the fallout from the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, found time to appear at a Queens community board meeting and an Upper West Side Democratic club. Lesser recalled how Schumer and his family, longtime members of Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn's Park Slope, spent a Christmas Eve in the early 2000s at a restaurant in Chinatown. When a terrorism threat came up that night, Lesser tried to reach him, but his phone was off. So Lesser resorted to calling Chinese restaurants across Manhattan, asking if the senator was there. Lesser eventually found him, but only after hours of trouble. The problem, he and his family looked like everyone else to the restaurants. They kept saying to me that, No, there's no U.S. senator here, Lesser said, just a Jewish family. And next from JTA, A.E. Pai executive steps down from a pro-Trump group following backlash from fraternity alumni by Ben Sales. An A.E. Pai executive is leaving his position with a group whose political arm took part in the January 6th pro-Donald Trump rally in Washington. Andrew Borens, the CEO of the Alpha Epsilon Pi Foundation, served on the advisory council of Turning Point USA, a pro-Donald Trump organization whose political arm participated in the January 6th Washington, D.C. protest of the election results. The protest preceded the storming of the Capitol that left five people dead. In a Facebook post Thursday morning announcing he would step down from the advisory council, Boren said he was never involved in any day-to-day -day activities of Turning Point or even knew about them. He wrote that he was introduced to the group by AEPI members and had advised Turning Point on how to best help Jewish college students. He also wrote that Turning Point's contingent left the rally before the storming of the Capitol and conflating Turning Point and Andy Boren's as part of that horror show is dishonest at its core. I will state unequivocally that I abhor violence of any kind and denounce a million times what occurred at the Capitol, Boren's wrote. Like many of you, I watched on live television the scenes of anti-Semitism and violence on full display, and they shook me to my bone. 
Last week, Borens told JTA that his work with Turning Point was unconnected to his work with AEPI, where he has worked for decades and previously served as executive director. The fraternity also said in a statement that the two roles were unconnected. But many alumni of AEPI, perhaps the best-known Jewish fraternity, saw the matter differently. More than 1,000 AEPI alumni signed an open letter, originally published Monday, calling on Borens to either step down from Turning Point or leave AEPI. The letter said that Borens' work with Turning Point reflected on his leadership of the fraternity. How can we encourage our sons to join a fraternity that, at a minimum, stood by as its most active ambassador was involved with a group that facilitated an attack by an armed mob on the most prominent symbol of American democracy, the letter reads. You owe it to the Brotherhood to issue a clear condemnation of the TPUSA and the ideology behind the insurrection at the Capitol. The first two signatories to the letter, Pete and Alan Freeman, said in a joint statement that they appreciated Boren's prioritizing his career with the fraternity. We applaud Andy Boren's decision to resign from the TPUSA Advisory Council, the statement says. Our politics may be different, but he evidently made this decision in deference to the best interest of Alpha Epsilon Pi, an organization to which he has dedicated his career and which continues to serve an important nonpartisan role on college campuses. Turning Point USA's political arm, Turning Point Action, sent seven buses to the Washington, D.C. rally. Turning Point Action, whose founder had also baselessly claimed the election was fraudulent, said its attendees left immediately after President Donald Trump's speech and did not participate in the Capitol mob, some of whose members displayed anti-Semitic or racist symbols. Turning Point Action denounced political violence and, in a statement to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency Wednesday, said it and its affiliates, including the group that sent buses to the rally, Students for Trump, are proud supporters of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Not only did Turning Point Action and Students for Trump not have anything to do with the riots in Washington, the organization would never knowingly associate with anti-Semites or a group that harbors excuses or encourages anti-Semitism, the statement says. Anyone who suggests otherwise is either lying or painfully uninformed. The debate over Boran's affiliation with Turning Point reflects the ongoing rifts among American Jews as they reckon with the effects and legacy of the Trump era. Boran's, like many other national Jewish leaders, has long been politically active. He has donated to candidates from both parties, and more to Democrats than to Republicans. Campaign finance records show that since 2015, he donated about $4,500 to Republicans, including gifts to Trump's 2020 campaign, and more than $1,000 over four donations to freshman Republican Representative Madison Cawthorn, who faced backlash during the campaign due to a previous trip to the vacation home of Adolf Hitler, whom Cawthorn referred to as the Fuhrer. Cawthorn said the trip was to honor the American soldiers who captured the compound and that the Nazis were one of the greatest evils in human history. One day after the controversy broke, Borens gave Cawthorn $18. Borens' last donation to Cawthorn was in September. About two months later, Cawthorn emerged as a vocal candidate for overturning the election results, the topic of the January 6th rally that Turning Point students joined. But since 2015, 
Borans gave more than $11,400 to Democrats, including more than $8,700 to Democratic Representative Josh Gottheimer, a centrist and a EPI alumnus of the University of Pennsylvania. Last year, he donated to the primary campaign of Anton Melton Mio, who unsuccessfully challenged Representative Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar, a supporter of boycotting Israel. Borens has also given explicitly to oppose a white supremacist's campaign. In 2016, he donated to a political action committee opposing the quixotic Senate bid of David Duke, the white supremacist leader. Borens did not respond to questions about his donations. AEPI spokesman Jonathan Pierce pointed to Borens' history of donating to a nonpartisan political action committee, as well as to Democrats, including to Joe Biden's 1988 presidential campaign. Pierce told JTA that Borens has a long history of supporting pro-Israel candidates on both sides of the aisle. But the open letter showed that some AEPI alums felt Borens' affiliation with Turning Point crossed the lines of accepted debate and associated their fraternity with what the letter deemed an extremist group. The letter included a wide range of signatories from members who graduated in the 1960s to a few current college freshmen. Started by a group of Columbia University alumni, the letter has been signed by AEPI brothers across North America. It is unclear, however, if all the signatories are authentic. The name of AEPI's board president-elect, for example, initially appeared on the letter, Reached by JTA Tuesday, he said he did not, in fact, sign the letter. Several AEPI brothers who spoke to JTA said they had passing interactions or ongoing relationships with Borens over the years. Before he learned of Borens' decision to leave Turning Point, Pete Freeman said that he would prefer Borens to leave the group and remain with AEPI, where Freeman said he is clearly valued. We're fraternity brothers. We take that seriously. And he helped us think about ourselves that way, said Pete Freeman, who is not related to Josh Freeman, another AEPI alum who had drawn attention to Borens' turning point involvement. I respect anybody's right to lobby for causes that are important to them, associate with groups with whom they find common cause, but when you're put in a leadership position with one of those groups, it reflects on everything else you do. Borens wrote in his Facebook post that he would not be resigning from AEPI. The beauty of being an American is being able to freely associate with whatever organization you choose, he wrote. I will continue to be a proud American, proud Jew, and serve the greatest organization I have ever had the privilege of belonging to, and that is AEPI. And next from JTA, Roberta Kaplan is crushing white supremacists in court, and she wants America to start taking them more seriously. An interview with Roberta Kaplan by JTA's Laura E. Adkins. When I interviewed Roberta Kaplan December 15th, neither of us might have guessed how frighteningly prescient her words would be. Kaplan has had a prolific legal career representing corporate giants and cultural icons alike. Formerly a litigation partner at Paul Weiss, a top Manhattan-based law firm, she formed her own firm in 2017 to handle public interest cases as well as commercial litigation. In recent years, she has been raising the alarm about the dangers of domestic terrorism and made headlines for suing the organizers of the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. In December, Kaplan's firm filed a U.S. Supreme Court brief defending the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania against claims of election fraud, 
and is also representing Mary Trump, President Trump's cousin, and E. Jean Carroll, who has accused the former president of rape in civil cases against him. I don't think I appreciated when we brought this Charlottesville case the degree to which it has become a harbinger of so many of the troubling things we are seeing in our country today, Kaplan told me just weeks before a pro-Trump mob broke into the Capitol building. In ways that I never anticipated, Charlottesville has become a predictor and sadly a symbol of so many of the very serious problems that plague our society. Many across the political spectrum are hoping that the Biden presidency will bring with it a return to civility, but Kaplan reminds us why, until we face the most violent forces at work in our society today, we shouldn't get too comfortable just yet. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. JTA In August 2017, within months of opening your law firm, Kaplan, Hecker & Fink, the Charlottesville rally took place. What were you thinking and feeling? And what did you do as you were watching it unfold? Kaplan The Monday after, I decided, looking back on it, somewhat naively, that we would all have lunch together and order in pizza and watch the press coverage of what had happened in Charlottesville. I say naively because it was shocking to everyone, and I remember one of the paralegals had to leave the room. They were very upset with the whole thing. But as I was watching what happened that weekend, the thought immediately occurred to me that something needed to be done about it. And I was very concerned that then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who does not exactly have a great record on civil rights to say the least, was not going to be devoting a lot of Department of Justice resources to investigating and prosecuting the widespread conspiracy that had happened. In keeping with my nature, I said to myself, if the DOJ is not going to do it, then I will. I also thought back to a case that a mentor of mine at Paul Weiss had done in the early days of the Internet. A website that was called the Nuremberg Files, believe it or not, had on it the names, personal contact information, and photos of doctors who performed abortions, mostly in the West and South. When those doctors were hurt and one of them was killed, they would put a red X over those doctors. The argument in that case was that the website was a violation of the Violence Against Women Act, and it was obviously incitement to do violence against other doctors on the site. And I thought to myself, could we use something like that here? In the end, a huge multi-million dollar judgment was sustained against the defendants, and Paul Weiss had devoted significant resources to enforcing that judgment by following defendants around and seizing their homes and garnishing their wages. So in the Charlottesville case, we got a very lucky break. Someone managed to get into the Discord chat that the organizers of Charlottesville used to plan Charlottesville going back for weeks before August 11th and 12th and published those chats on a website called Unicorn Riot. Typically in cases, you don't get discovery, the formal process of obtaining evidence from the parties, before you file a complaint. But here, this stuff was out there, so we effectively had a lot of documents that we wouldn't otherwise have. With all of those pieces in place, I called Dahlia Litwick, who is a good friend, who writes about the Supreme Court and other issues for Slate. At the time, she lived in Charlottesville and had lived there for a long time. I said, look, I have this crazy idea in my head. What do you think? And she says, I think it's a great idea. Why don't I introduce you to some folks? Within 48 or 72 hours, we were on a plane to Charlottesville. 
When we arrived, the town was really still in shock. A lot of the men, and it's fair to say there were very few women, who descended upon Charlottesville that weekend to commit racialized or racially motivated violence, drove around town in these all-white Mercedes vans. When we were there several days later, those vans were still driving around town, particularly in the African-American neighborhoods. So people were still freaked out, to use a fancy legal term. We met with a whole bunch of people, several of whom became plaintiffs in our case. That includes Reverend Seth Wispelway, who during the weeks leading up to the Charlottesville, uh, leading up to Charlottesville and during the events on August 11th and 12th, organized these huge interfaith protests against what was going on with rabbis and others. But it was a really intense trip. When we were driving back to the airport, one of the associates in the car was crying. I remember saying to her, buck up, you've got a lot of work to do. We all got to buck up and be tough and do this case. JTA, what is the relationship between your law firm and Integrity First America, the civil rights group, backing your federal lawsuit? Kaplan, there's only one case in which we have a relationship with Integrity First America. When I came back to New York, I realized this was going to be an expensive proposition. I've been involved with the people who were starting IFA, but I've never had a position there. I suggested to Integrity First that this might be the kind of case they'd be interested in getting involved in. A lot of the expenses related to the case mostly fall into two big buckets. One is security for lawyers, plaintiffs, and experts. Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt, for example, is an expert in our case. The security costs of making sure that all of those people are safe are substantial, to say the least. Two, the defendants in our case have the mentality of maybe teenage juvenile delinquents, and they refuse to comply with court orders about discovery. In fact, one of them has been jailed, and a bunch of them have been sanctioned about it. But ultimately, in order to get any evidence from them at all, we had to agree to pay the costs of getting their dry, uh, devices, their laptops, their phones, etc., and having those devices sent to a vendor who then scraped the data from the devices and then ran the searches that the parties had agreed on. It's like $500 per device to do that. JTA. Kaplan, Heckler, uh, Hecker, and Fink officially opened in July 2017. President Trump assumed office January 2017. Was the timing coincidental, or did his election play a role in your decision to start your own firm? It definitely is not coincidental. I've been thinking for some time that I wanted to create a firm like Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink, but I thought that before I did something like that, I would first, if I could, have the privilege of serving in what I thought was going to be the Clinton administration. And so I was very hopeful, had Hillary been elected, that I would have been honored to get a job in the Justice Department and to work for our first woman president in that capacity. When that didn't happen, it kind of forced the matter. And so then I began to think more and more about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And what I wanted to do with the rest of my life was to practice law the way that our firm is currently practicing. JTA, what are some of the hallmarks of what your firm is trying to do? Kaplan, I believe very strongly, and Paul Weiss had a culture that believed very strongly that every lawyer has an obligation to serve the public interest in some capacity. Whether that's through pro bono cases, like the Windsor case that I did at Paul Weiss, 
leading to the legalization of marriage equality, or whether it's serving on bar committees or some things like that, it's important that every lawyer, certainly every litigator, do something positive to support the administration of justice in our society. And even when I left to start the firm, while I didn't expect it to be good, that's for sure, I don't think I fully contemplated or could have imagined the many serious threats to our Constitution and to our justice system that the Trump administration posed, including the challenge to the votes of the American people. So I thought from the very beginning that even putting Trump aside that our firm would be one that was very dedicated to doing work that's in the public interest, and not just run-of-the-mill pro bono cases like many firms do, I'm not criticizing those cases, they are important, but we aim for high-impact cases that really make a broader impact on society rather than just affecting one litigant. Two, I believe very strongly in my heart and in my bones that the same skills that I put to litigating for Airbnb or Uber or Goldman Sachs or you name it, we at our firm should use the same resources and time and care to the cases of Mary Trump and E. Jean Carroll and the plaintiffs in the Charlottesville case and other public interest cases. I had a sense that if you created a firm with that as the cornerstone, you would be able to attract really incredibly talented lawyers who will want to practice law that way, and I'm proud to say that has certainly been the case for us. JTA I get the sense, reading your case history, that you also, and correct me if I'm wrong, are very much a spring-into-action-quickly type of person. Kaplan, there's a joke in my law firm, Robbie Acts. One of my friends was counseling a more junior partner, saying that if you say something to Robbie, you better make sure that it has support because she may act on it. Even before the Windsor case, but I certainly saw while working on the Windsor case how a small group of dedicated, smart lawyers can make fundamental change. JTA. Returning to the Charlottesville case, where does it stand? There have been a lot of sanctions in the case. Elliot Klein, an organizer of the Unite the Right rally, was put in jail for a couple of days, and a lot of the other defendants have had monetary sanctions awarded against them. But the most recent ruling is a big deal because the judge ordered what are called adverse inferences. That is a very, very negative development for the defendants in the case. What that means is, when we get to a jury trial, this spring we hope, but likely fall because of COVID-19, the judge will instruct the jurors that certain facts in the case that we allege they have to assume are true. Those facts include things like that Klein, who was one of the two ringleaders of the conspiracy, was motivated by animus against racial minorities, Jewish people and their supporters, and conspired to engage in acts of intimidation and violence on August 11th and 12th in Charlottesville, that it was reasonably foreseeable to Klein and intended by Klein that his co-conspirators uh, co would commit acts of racially motivated violence and intimidation at the Torchlight event on August 11th, that it was reasonably foreseeable and intended by him that co-conspirators would commit acts of violence at the Unite the Right event on August 12th, etc. And that kind of a sanction is very rare. It's very hard to get. But it's evidence of the kind of contempt for court orders and normal court processes that defendants in this case have shown throughout the case. JTA. What are both the short-term and long-term goals in bringing this case?
Short term, our goal is to have a jury trial. We are supposed to have one. We were supposed to have one this past fall. That obviously didn't play, take place because of COVID. Our clients have been waiting a very long time. No civil cases move quickly, but this case is moving much slower than most because of the defendant's intransigence. It's really time to get the show on the road and get this going. Long term, we really hope that the trial will be a wake-up call for Americans who have not, and certainly for Jews who have not, appreciated how dangerous this threat was and continues to be. One of the reasons why I did this case is to deter other white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and others from trying to organize anything like Charlottesville ever again, and making them understand that if they do, these will be the consequences. Some of the defendants in this case have already complained about how hard this trial is making it for them to organize and to raise money, people like Richard Spencer. And to our knowledge, none of them participated in person in the events at the Capitol January 6th. In other words, they at least have been deterred. It's pretty hard to surprise me. I've been practicing law for a long time. I've seen a lot and I'm not exactly a spring chicken anymore, so my skin tends to be pretty thick. But the one part of this case I have to say that truly astounded me was once we got into the defendant's text messages and emails back and forth, it was astounding to me that something like 90% of the discriminatory, the discriminatory hateful things they say are directed at Jews. That's not to say they don't hate black people, that they don't hate Muslim people, that they're not crazy about immigrants. But their overwhelming, overriding passion is anti-Semitism. And what was so shocking to me about that, among other things, was that most of them come from rural communities from all over the country, so I assume that most of them don't know any Jewish people. And the idea that there was this kind of underwater river of virulent anti-Semitism in our country was shocking. The other thing that surprised me over time is that I don't think I appreciated when we brought this case the degree to which it has become a harbinger of so many of the troubling things we are seeing in our country today. The dispute in Charlottesville, at least to hear the neo-Nazis tell it, was all about attempts by the Charlottesville city government to take down the statue of Robert E. Lee. We don't think that was what it was really about. The defendants in the case and the organizers of the Charlottesville violence often also blamed everything on Antifa. That they were going there because of Antifa, and the problem was Antifa. This specter of this huge menacing thing called Antifa was also something that has become all too prevalent in response to Black Lives Matter's protests and in the recent election protests. The use of disinformation is also significant. They talked a lot in the weeks leading up to Charlottesville about how they would make it look like self-defense and strategies for making it look like self-defense. Today, if you follow groups like Identity, Europa, and Proud Boys and others, they will often go and commit looting and throw stuff into shop windows and make it look like it was the Black Lives Matter's protesters who did the vandalism. And fourth, perhaps most disturbingly, is the use of cars to commit violence against protesters. A lot of the pre-August 11th communication these guys had was about driving vehicles into protesters. In the last six months, I think there have been more than 60 incidents of people driving cars 
or other vehicles into protesters. So in ways that I never anticipated, Charlottesville has become a predictor and sadly a symbol of so many of the very serious problems that plague our society today. JTA. We've also seen since Charlottesville two synagogue shootings, not to mention many other anti-Semitic attacks that, when you trace the shooter's online activity, look very similar in terms of these chats. Kaplan. There are all kinds of connections. The guy who did the shooting at the Tree of Life was in communication with the defendants in our case. The guy who did the mosque shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, had on his rifle a symbol called a fash tag, which is using fascist and hashtag, which was created by one of the defendants in our case, Matthew Heimbach. We are suing the Charlottesville rioters under the KKK Act of 1871. But back then, and even in the 1920s, when the KKK got together to plan violence, they had to go into the forest wearing white hoods. Today, they just have to come up with a name for themselves, a hashtag on one of these websites. And I don't think we fully come to appreciate how incredibly ominous all of this is. JTA, it seems that your efforts are focused on litigating violence that occurs and tracing backwards to see where it comes from. But I wonder if there are more direct ways to prevent future attacks and slow the spread of online ideologies using legal tools. Kaplan, absolutely. So the FBI acknowledged at one point that they had kind of been asleep at the switch when it comes to the threat of right-wing, ultra-nationalist, white supremacist violence. They now say it's the number one single security problem facing this country. And law enforcement. Especially federal law enforcement knows what to do to counter groups like this. After all, they were very effective in doing it after 9-11. The only difference between those groups after 9-11 and the groups today is that the groups today are homegrown and they're not coming to the U.S. from countries in the Middle East. But that shouldn't make a difference. There's no such thing as domestic terrorism under our statutes today. But those same efforts to track those groups need to happen, and honestly, I believe they are happening. And I'm quite sure that under the Biden administration, they will, I mean, given that Joe Biden has talked about Charlottesville so many times, that they will devote substantial resources to this. JTA. The ACLU has taken a lot of flack for suing the city of Charlottesville to essentially help make this march happen. Do you think they were wrong to do so? As far as I understand, they have acknowledged that they made a mistake. If all the guys had come to Charlottesville and just held up flags and swastikas and just said, as horrific as it is, back to the ovens. As horrible as that is, they probably have a First Amendment right to do it. But that's not what happened in Charlottesville. Motivated by those beliefs, they came to Charlottesville intending to commit violence. And I think the ACLU has now acknowledged that had they known it, they never would have represented them in court. JTA. This highlights a tension for me between the absolutist free speech position and the desire to prevent societal unrest and violence. Does this highlight something new that's happening in American society to you? Has our legal system not caught up with how society is changing? 
Legally, in terms of Supreme Court precedents and cases, we've always understood that there is a very clear line under the law between espousing hateful views and planning violence. Espousing hateful views as bad as it is and as damaging as it can be to society, the First Amendment protects that. On the other hand, everyone has always agreed that planning violence motivated by hateful views is illegal and can be prosecuted. One of the problems that you have here is that technology and social media allow hateful views to be circulated in such a wide and instantaneous manner. It's not like a bunch of neo-Nazis standing on a street corner in Skokie. Instead, it's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of messages every hour on social media espousing these views. Second, these groups have gotten very sophisticated about knowing when something looks like a threat and being careful not to make it look like a threat, even though they're planning violence. Because they themselves have gotten schooled, sadly enough, in the principles of First Amendment law. And so they are very careful, while they sometimes cross the line, they are very careful in trying to say things that do not cross the line. But regardless, if someone is saying things about planning violence at a rally and using weapons and the kinds of things they were saying about Charlottesville before August 11th, there's never been any doubt that that kind of stuff is illegal. But what the government needs to do, I believe, is have more investigative techniques to follow these groups and catch them when they're doing it. JTA I can't help but ask, since you studied Russian history and literature and were active working with Soviet Jews, are there parallels that you see in American culture that echo some of the things that you witnessed while studying Soviet culture? Kaplan, thank God, and I really mean that, thank God that American society has institutions like courts and laws and professions in place that so far have been strong enough to withstand what these guys want, which is a fascist authoritarian state that enslaves minorities, essentially. So far, our institutions have held up. Those institutions did not exist in the Soviet Union. They didn't exist in Russia before the Soviet Union, and that's why Russian society is and was very different from the rest of the world, at least compared to other Western countries. But I can say that growing up and living the life I did, I honestly never I think many of us feel this way, never thought I would be living through times that truly felt historic. This country has obviously welcomed Jews in a way that no country in the diaspora ever has, and Jews have reached a level of success in the United States that is unprecedented. If you had told me while I was in college the kinds of threats we're facing in our country today, I would have told you that you were nuts. After studying Russia, and spending a semester in Russia in 1987, I never thought that we would be living in times that felt as important and significant in terms of the future as things often felt in Russia, and certainly felt in Russia when I was there in 1987. When I was there, I was stupidly fearless. I was a college kid, and one of the things I did is I was at the train station and then a party when Yuli Edelstein was released from the Gulag after he was put there for teaching Hebrew. I have a picture of me with Yuli and his father at the time. I'm not suggesting anything rises to that level. We're not putting people in gulags, and I certainly never knew that Yuli Edelstein was going to become a leader in the Knesset, but I just thought that our society was protected from all that. Our country. 
And the truth is, we're not. JTA, you mentioned in an interview years ago that you developed the philosophical sense that religion can serve as a bulwark against totalitarian governments. Can you say a little more about that? I very much believe that. We know that human beings have a great capacity for evil, and the institutions that have held back against that, that have somehow worked to make sure human beings treat each other with loving kindness, with chesed, and with justice, with tzedakah, have been religious institutions. Not that religion doesn't have enormous grievous harms that it has committed throughout human history, but it's one of the institutions that has the ability to foster those values. Seth Wispelway, the reverend in our case, is a perfect example of that, and you can look at pictures of him during the events of August 11th and 12th, standing arm in arm with Cornell West and with the junior rabbi from the local synagogue and others. I don't know how he had the bravery to do that, quite honestly. I think that bravery came from his faith, but I don't want to suggest that that's the only way for human beings to treat each other with dignity and respect, because it certainly isn't. JTA, if we can end on a positive note, what are you most looking forward to in the hopefully few months ahead once the pandemic is behind us? Kaplan, post-pandemic? I thought you were going to say post-inauguration. Post-inauguration, I'm really looking forward to sleeping. Post-pandemic, one of the great things about living in New York City is being able to go to live theater, which I do a lot, and I really miss it. And so I really look forward to the day I go to see a Broadway show as soon as it's safe after the pandemic and being able to go to synagogue not on a computer screen. And next from JTA News Briefs, police in London broke up an illegal wedding party with 400 participants that was held at a Jewish Haredi or ultra-Orthodox school. The organizer of Thursday's wedding at Yesode HaTorah Senior Girls School, which violated emergency measures put in place to curb the spread of COVID-19, are facing a fine of $12,000 each, the Jewish News of London reported. Five guests were given a $220 fine. The school's principal, Avraham Pinter, died of the coronavirus in April. Yesode Hatora's management in a statement said they were horrified by the incident and were not responsible for it. We lease our hall to an external organization which manages all weddings and as such we had no knowledge that the wedding was taking place. We have terminated the agreement with immediate effect, management said. The wedding is the latest in a series of large events held in Orthodox Jewish communities in violation of local rules designed to stop the spread of the pandemic. Jewish weddings caused tension in London during the pandemic's first wave last spring and summer, while Hasidic newspapers in New York and Israel have documented steps taken to escape detection by authorities while holding large weddings. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening.